mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Today on the show, I have two guests from the Rock Island Auction Company. I have outside consultant Richard Ellis and director of acquisitions Rick Henley. Welcome to the show, guys. Nice to meet you, Kat. Thanks for having us. I get um, at the museum. Well, we currently, just to preface for our audience, have uh, Richard's personal collection of guns and some powder tins as well on display in the museum. And the guns we have are big guns. They're punt guns and large bore guns. And they are probably, well, they're the most popular things in the museum, like hands down. The punt gun is hands down the most popular thing in the museum. We get lots of questions about them. We have lots of crazy things said about them, which I eventually want to get into some of the myths about them. The first thing I want to start with, and I also want to talk about other classic waterfowling guns as well, but let's just go ahead and go. Well, actually, before that, before we go straight into the punt gun, I'd like to get y'all to give me um, your background and how you got into uh, into like waterfowling guns in general and did you have a hunting background or a collecting background um, how did you get into this how about you start Richard I've been in uh, collectible firearms and, and an interest in any firearms since I was a, a child I was carried to gun shows and always had an active role with the firearms and it, it you know became my uh, profession uh I've done it from all levels. It, it doesn't matter from from shooting to learning about them, appraising. And when I was younger, I hunted, but I I kind of weaned myself from it. I'm too busy to do it. I I don't have the chance to enjoy it like when my grandfather was alive. He was an avid sportsman. Uh, he was a farmer, so he would have all his spare time when the crops were harvested. He would hunt all winter and fish all summer so when he passed away when i was young i i kind of lost my hunting companion and then you know my interest kind of waned and and but i was always active with the guns uh, multitude of levels and and the the nice thing with with this collection it's all antique it's all uh, the market hunting ended finally abruptly in 1918 with the federal migratory act which stopped all all that nonsense with shooting huge quantities of duck there was no sportsman tendency to it and the boone and crockett club had a lot to do with that there was politicians that were part of that that you know we we got really you know good sensible conservation laws to keep the hunting alive and you know and uh, as you know and and uh, these market guns were always intrigued me uh, most of them are english when you find them there's a preponderance of english 
uh, guns that were made for the, the, the market hunting. And, and I think they carried on further, but my collection that's on display is all American and you will see a hundred English guns for every one American made gun. The powder end of it, why well, I had the powder kegs and powder tins is that, you know, these being muzzle loading, uh, that, that's all they, they use. They use raw powder. And, you know, I was seeing there's a series now about DuPont and, you know, what his contributions or the whole family, you know, they made their money. They always went back and forth. They're more into chemicals now, but the, the gunpowder has always been a, you know, a, a huge asset. So I thought that was always interesting to, you have to, when you have those market guns, you have to have, you know, what supplied them. So, but they're very detailed how they did those cans and it's almost like you know marketing because being part of the auction company that i you know been here since inception is the fact that you market and there's all these different companies and this dupont grew so large for example they bought out a lot of their competition but there was all these different companies that made powder and, and it was still black powder is black powder it's just Depends on what grain it is, you know, whether it's more of a coarse grain or a fine grain, but they would all make the package to sell it. And they, they're just finely decorated as Katie, you know, you, you've been aware of it, but so I guess that's my life story in a nutshell. <laughs> all right, Rick. Well, how did you get into all this? What's your background? Mine might be a little shorter. Uh, so I, I really didn't grow up in, uh, like a big gun family or even really hunting that much. My dad, um, I mean, he had a few hunting guns, but, uh, uh as he always told me, you know, he, he never hunted for sport as a kid. He hunted to, to eat. And so when he was old enough and had money, he didn't want to do that. But, uh, every once in a while, every few years, my uncle, uh, my one uncle from the UP of Michigan would come down to pheasant hunt in Iowa. And I just remember, like, I'd go out every once in a while with them with my BB gun. And I just, I love that. Uh, I love those memories and, and love doing that so much that when I got into high school, I uh, basically just told my dad, I'm going to start hunting and uh, got into it with some friends. And then when I was going to college, I got a part-time job at a at a, a gun store, hunting store, and then just decided, like, I, I really enjoyed that. And so I, I went to went to work full-time, basically, for a, a different um, outdoor store and, um, you know, just kind of from the hunting side of it. And then uh, they had, you know, just like one of the collectible gun rooms um, and started getting interested in that part of it and, and started buying for that company. And then uh, found out about Rock Island Auction. And I lived, I, I grew up about an hour away from the office here, but um, just kind of decided this is what I wanted to do and applied here, got a job here, and kind of the rest is history. So, so did you start out just, or do you do mostly guns in general? Or do you like focus on certain types of guns or how does that work at Rock Island? Do y'all have, do y'all specialize in different? areas everything i mean if it as i say if it goes bang we we can sell it so uh from the from the we've had the earliest hand cannons to modern day uh guns class threes machine guns are hot uh i mean and every everything in between cannons tanks do y'all have an auction is it coming up or did you just have one just last weekend we just had last one. Weekend. Yeah. and when would you be your next one like how how do y'all uh, do auctions y'all do them like quarterly or what's what's the deal with it yeah. 
Yeah, so we have we have three different types of gun auctions. Okay. Um, like the one we just had, and the one you kind of see, um, you know, all the advertising and marketing about is is our premier sales. That's what we just had last weekend. Um, you know, that's where you're going to see the the six and seven figure guns, and so we hold three of those a year. The next one of those we'll have will be in May. Um, but then we also have other other auctions that are geared more towards kind of beginning collectibles, affordable antiques, shootable sporting arms. And then we also have one that's kind of more you know, like your more modern new in box uh, kind of gun store type stuff. That, and we have one of those basically every month. Let's go back because I really kind of want to focus just for a little while on the punt. Can one of you explain to our audience exactly what a punt gun is? Okay, I, I can jump in on that. The, the punt guns generally... Uh, are the larger bore, the ones that actually uh, ma- massive gauge. They fired a, a great hit. Some of them fired as much as two pounds in shot. And their idea was to get between, you know, the, the most ducks they could shoot with one shot. It, it was purely a business. They're basically uh, artillery, you know, I mean, they're <laughs> percussion artillery. Yeah, I mean, it's like a cannon, but it's firing shot. And when I use the term market gun, well, they, they branch down to smaller ones. They're still, it, with, with the Federal Migratory Act, they banned anything above larger than 10 gauge. So as you'll see with you know, my collection, you know, they're eight eights and six gauges that's about all you can really throw to your shoulder and still fire you know when you get past that uh you get some of those inch and a quarter bore kind of thing that's like putting a cannon to your shoulder if you can lift it one of my weapons there i mean that thing might be 80 pounds i mean i think it looks and but it appears like you could put it to your shoulder and my kids growing up they were always having a contest who could actually hold that to their shoulder, you know, and, and then it became the cousins and the nephews and they looked like the, the front line to the bears or something. I mean, I've got six foot five, I'm, I'm six foot and I'm the smallest guy there sometimes, but it takes a hefty guy to throw that can into his shoulder. Whereas it was really meant to mount in a bracket over in a skull boat, which they, they call the hunting boats, they call them skull boats. And basically, would they would mount it over the keel, you know, basically the boat pointing forward. But you know, some of them I've had years ago that were just so crude they looked like a, a piece of timber and block, and they actually had fabricated shock absorber kind of things. But they never really appealed to me. They they just looked like a big piece of sewer pipe or something attached to some bands. And at least the the ones that I've put on display with your museum, you know, are. are ones that i always favored i mean they just had the look right and i could uh, i mean i think you're well aware of it katie i mean you remember you actually had to make a kind of a mount for one of them I that, did. that really came out right i had to you make had a mount fastener. for both of them actually <laughs> yeah and i haven't seen it i'm looking forward to coming down there to see see my collection we're coming down so i've just had photos yeah they don't make mounts for those because uh, they can't well <laughs> no. one they're the size of them so that's a problem and then two the weight of them so you have to yeah. be able to hold the weight and the size of them and get them and you want them you know right at that perfect like nice and level and so you get that look of what it looked like in a boat okay so they're mounted in the boat I'm trying well kind of paint a picture for people because 
I think if you haven't seen one, it's really hard. And I recommend you can look it up online. And there's lots of places you can see them. You can see them on y'all's site. So how? So they would would they load them in the boat or on shore and then mount them? Like how? What would be the method? Generally, the first round they would already have preloaded. Okay. Because once they <laughs> once this happened, this event happened. You had a lot of, you know, ducks floating the wall. I mean, it was a an event. Plus, you just scared away any others, you know, for miles around. Right. Because, yeah, and, but they would most likely, at least the first round, preload. Then they had to mount it. Now, imagine these skull boats. They they had a, it, it like a, it'd be like, everybody knows what a canoe looks like. Right. Imagine a, a wider in the center canoe. You know, people know what rowboats look like, but, but it's, low it's like profile. a fattened, low profile, very low profile because they had to camouflage. You know, they were trying to get as close to the duck. They, they shot them on the water. Right. You know, I mean, they, there was there was no sport here. This was purely for business. And, you know, they were market. And when they say market, it was the meat for market. They were selling the ducks, you know, the, you know. To, to feed people. So uh, low profile, kind of a flattened, imagine a canoe that's very low profile. Well, it has to be reinforced because you had a great deal of, you know, from when when these shot, when these fired, you know, usually they were bracketed down into the boat. They'd have a strap, some sort of a strap to the forward nose, you know, not an not like an oar because it would probably rip the side off the boat. It it had to be mounted somehow, and, and some apparatuses that I've seen had shock absorber kind of tendencies, and but they were crude at best a lot of times. So once they have it on the boat, and I mean it's already loaded, it's on the boat, and it's such a low profile, and I'm sure the weight of it makes it the boat cumbersome to navigate how are they navigating this boat to the ducks and how are they getting into position they they would you know you, you, a lot of time they start in low light situations that, you know before dawn you'll see some of the old lanterns they use i mean you have to understand most this was all done before you know westinghouse made spotlights we're talking about basically some reflective capability in a kerosene lantern to to get them close they just go in as silent and as quiet. They would oar their way in um, and get as close as they can because the closer they get, the more they, you know, the more uh, numbers of, of ducks they would kill with a single round. So I'm guessing they would also have someone or at least someone in another boat behind them trying to chase cripples because I imagine there's a lot of cripples in this situation. Oh, absolutely. And there would be backup guns, you know, just like, you know, by the same token, you know, they they were not, these people, you know, they, they were just thinking of a business. If they didn't get the secondary one, so be it, there'd be another round. So, okay. What is what would be a typical size and weight of a punt gun? Just to give that idea, I know they can vary. Um, like the one in your museum can be, they can be pretty short as well. But what what would you say like the average size of a punt is? I'm going to pass this over to Rick. He did a very nice uh, tape on this matter. So go ahead, Rick. Yeah, you would see a bit of a, a difference between like the percussion guns, uh -huh. right? You know where 
you could see a whole variation of different size bores. Um, but then once they started getting into uh, breech loading stuff and, and actual cartridges, um, you know, stuff got more standardized. So and when you got to that point, you'd see like two bores, one and a half bores, one bores. Um, and so to give you an idea, like, with and maybe you guys have discussed this before, but you know the idea of a 12 gauge or a 12 bore um, is the amount of of round balls of that size it takes to make a pound, right? That's where like that that comes up with. So a one bore would be obviously a a, a ball of lead that size is one pound. So big. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean you're talking you know two inch bores basically um, at that point. I can't remember exactly what the the nominal bore is for a one bore as far as, as in inches. But um, like I said, very, very, very large rounds at that point. But then with the percussion stuff, it's not standardized. So you could have, you know, a whole different variation of sizes at that point. So what is the evolution? Uh, I mean, it's not very long. They weren't around that long. So from going from like the muzzleloader to these breech load, like how did that evolve did that include like manufacturers at the point in the later point, and how did it come from there? Because some of the early ones are very crude, like we talked about. But what's that evolution on the gun? Yeah, you saw again a lot of the muzzleloader ones would have been just like any muzzleloader, custom made. You know, at that point, just whatever they decided they wanted to make, and like I said, they'd be very crude. You, you know, as you said, that these weren't necessarily popular for very long and there, so there weren't a lot of manufacturers out there making them as richard said predominantly you saw english manufacturers uh making them because there's actually guys still in england today that use them but but yeah i mean so like some of the there there were some english manufacturers that were well known for making punt guns and by well known means they made you know a few hundred of them maybe um but yeah, I mean, like I know we've sold some, even some Holland and Hollands. We've sold several Holland and Holland punt guns that came here through here. So, um, you know, you think of somebody that's as, as well known as Holland and Holland uh, making them. So it was obviously something where they had customers that that wanted them, but it was still a pretty uh, pretty niche um, market for sure. So in terms of like collecting, so this always comes up, and I don't know if this is like the exact term, but this is what I've always heard it called. You have punt guns, and then, like, you'll also come up with these. People will say they're punt guns, but they're actually what I've re heard referred to as castle guns. How does someone, like, if you're looking for these, like, how they tell the difference between them and um, and what, how does, you know, like, what's the difference? Like, explain that to everyone, because I have found people come up and say, I have a punt gun. And I'm like, uh, no, you, you don't. So can you, can you explain that a little bit more and what the difference? I, I can jump in here. What, what basically when they talk about castle guns, a lot of the large weapons that were made were just exactly what they're saying. They were fortress defense guns. The Europeans had these massive, big, uh, they're, mistaken for punt guns with which in fact they'll have almost like even a spade on some of them. the dutch made a lot of them that's it, under the muzzle because they went just like you think of a castle and they would actually go you know they'd be on top of the wall and these walls might be five foot thick for example and to 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 check the recoil because you're you've got this massive firearm you know, many of which with a one-inch kind of bore with a, a lot of a lot of powder behind them, that 
if you can imagine a protrusion, it looks like a triangular spade coming down under the muzzle that, that could rest itself against the outside wall of the castle. And, and the, the, the fortress defense guns, castle defense guns, and they get mistook all the time for punt guns. But there was a great deal of them made, and even you know a lot of more exported. Like say, for example, in the China, in, in Asia, they had their their emperors and stuff had massive walled defense castles. And that, that's what that that term is. But a punt gun actually is just exactly what we're talking about. It was meant to float on float in a you know in a in a body of water in a skull boat or a boat of some nature purely to shoot waterfall and it comes in all forms uh, you know and, and you were kind of going back to asking how heavy you know i think that one one that i have there in the in the in the display is like maybe 80 pounds yeah and then i have uh, one that's there to kind of give it's there long term but it's one of the more crude ones um from chesapeake bay which is pretty um you know it's ambiguous with uh with that area and it's probably nine feet nine and a half feet long and it takes about four of us to get it in there yeah yeah, yeah. and it's really crude like it's a steel pipe basically yeah god knows what it weighs whereas your basic sportsman shotgun you know the 12 gauge people are throwing to their shoulder to hunt ducks is you know six pounds seven pounds eight pounds right you know so it's a big difference and most of those market guns that i have down there they're in the 12 to 15 pound range because they're, you know, they're a bigger bore, mm-hmm. little, little beefier. You know, if you can throw them to your shoulder, man, you get past 12 pounds, you know, 10 or 12 pounds, you start to get cumbersome. And then some of those go 15 pounds, but they aren't, as we discussed before, they're not punt guns. They're, they're market guns. Yeah. And I'm going to ask a few more questions that, but I have two more questions about the punt itself. With the punt, you get these myths or about them like that and I kind of want you to debunk them a little bit or not maybe I don't think they're true but the idea of they would throw anything in there for shot like that's not true correct they used regular shot and black powder most most 95 percent of the time other than I've heard I've heard those myths but hey you know they they could use they could have used other items. They could have used old nails and stuff, but it wouldn't make sense. You wouldn't have any, you know, uh, consistency to it. It, it does. If, if you've tried to fire that, I've seen guys do test shoots with cannons and stuff, and it, it just flies everywhere. So, yes, that is a myth. They, they actually, if they were taking the time to make the weapon, they could cast or, or, or acquire, you know, lead shot in varying varying sizes and yeah well it wasn't like neat shot i'm sure they made it themselves <laughs> like it wasn't yeah, like yeah, yeah or, it's not like what we think of as a bb but yeah or they could they could source it yeah yeah i mean absolutely there's the, this much the way of sourcing the powder the shot was available i mean there's is famous shot towers that were like up in uh, the Dubuque, Iowa, for example, down in St. Louis, Missouri. Philadelphia you know, still the, has you, one standing. Right. And the way they made the shot, they dropped it from a elevation into a 
cold water and that, that's what when it hit the water you know they 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 had almost like strainer straining devices at the top and the lead was melted and then it dripped down and when it hit the water they they got their varied sizes from the the amount of lead you know the you know it's it's like a strainer yeah i guess would be the way to do and it it's a but, long drop <laughs> yeah it was very long drop i mean the, the towers were very high you know i mean 100 plus feet yeah, it's funny how they came up. Who knows how they came up with that? How many ducks did it? they actually kill? I mean, like, I know there are, like, high records, but let's talk about, like, the average shot. Like, how many, like, ducks were they actually killing with these guns on average? Well, I've seen some instances that they, you know, the bigger, larger boars, they were averaging between 50 and 100 birds, you know, but... I, you know, I'm not sure. It, it really depends on the size of the weapon they, they were using and how much shot you put out there. You know, you're only going to hit so many, you know, I mean, if you, but if you, if you would do one of those cannon size ones that we're talking about with one to two pounds of shot, you, you're going to get in that 50 to 100 right. kill range. Yeah. And I'm guessing they were typically mostly the same species of ducks that they were after. I mean, canvas backs is what I'm mostly here. Yeah, they. I I don't think they were as selective, but uh, if if they had, it depends on the area. You know, it's like I live on the Mississippi River up, you know, in Iowa, and, and it it's predominantly mallards. I have seen canvasbacks on rare occasion today, but God knows what it would have been a hundred and some years ago. You know, Rick's probably a little. He he hunts a lot over in Central. I go ahead and What's out there, Rick? Well, just like anybody duck hunting, right? I mean, yeah, you, you might see a ton of mallards, but then there'll be other stuff in there, and I'm sure it was the same back then. And and as Richard just alluded to, I mean, cans or, or canvas backs were, um, you know, way more prevalent back then. But they, you know, they were so they were so such good eating that, uh, yeah, they they did get they did get hunted down quite a bit. So, but I, I don't think they were. It wasn't as much about getting specific birds, I don't believe, as it was just yeah, getting a pile of birds and um, you know, like I said, for meat markets and the and the feather markets and that kind of stuff. So, one thing I would just add to that too, though, is is like th there was some technology as well to the punt guns. Like we sold a double barrel punt gun uh, not too long ago, which is pretty rare. We we haven't seen very. <laughs> Yeah, very double, uh, yeah, double barrels come one. through. But one of the things that they would do is they would set them up so that when you fired a, a, the double barrel, right, that it would shoot the first barrel and then automatically about a half, like a half second or however much longer later, it would shoot again so that they would get some birds, but then it would also flush up birds um, and then, then shooting. Yeah, to get the ones flushed. Yeah, get the ones yeah, flushed, and then you have it. Yeah, especially like I know Smart. I've tried, I've, <laughs> I've tried shooting a few birds off the water, and you know it, it, it protects them pretty well that water. So getting them up off there would have would have made a big difference too. So, so another thing I've always heard, and I don't know if this is true either about putts, but once they became illegal, um, they still were used, right? You know, they didn't just like. Like anything, when something becomes illegal, they don't just disappear. Um, people still are trying to use and take advantage of them because they were getting so many ducks and that's how they were making their living. And so one of the things I always have heard is that if they were about to, say, get caught by a game, I guess, I don't know if this was a game warden at that point, but they would throw them over the boat and stick a paddle in the water and come back for them. Is that true? 
Go ahead, Rick. I don't know any that's not, I can't remember where I heard that before, but I've never I've never heard of that, but uh I, I have heard of them uh sinking boats from yeah. uh from firing them. So Yes. yes. But I, yeah, I guess you throw it in the it'd be better to throw it in the water than uh get the ticket, I guess. I guess. Come I mean some of those could last, you know, hurricane so much underwater because they're literally just steel pipes and blocks of wood. But yeah. So yeah, the next thing I want to talk about are the shouldered ones. So are they are is the timeline of the market guns the, about the same as the punt? Is that I'm guessing they're using them a bit differently? How where are they in this history and how are they used? Well, it, it would be in the same time period. It's right. just depending on whether uh, somebody wanted to go to the extreme of making the boat and and. And you know, shooting huge numbers of them and making more of a business, or going with a larger type bore, you know, shoulder fired weapon, and it's it's just a matter of quantity. You know, you could have you know, Walmart sells a huge amount of quality or quantity, or you you have a local mom paw store. So you know, see, it just depends to what extent, how serious they, they would get. Maybe they, maybe they go out and shoot five to ten ducks and sell them to the local store or barter them for other uh, items they need, such as flour, or sorghum, or whatever. So these market guns, so they're killing multiple ducks at a time as well. My question really is, is like, okay, so to compare it to like ammo today. Like let's let's so so if you're comparing to ammo today, like the technology of the ammo, like it's getting less and less important to say like have a twelve gauge three and a half inch cell, right? Like you aren't needing that sort of because the ammo's gotten so much better that you really don't need that to shoot it, you know, to shoot ducks at a certain distance and whatnot. So is it similar like and then like they had this bigger gun because they could say shoot farther with it. Like was that the way around like having a black powder gun make it like just heavier firepower? Is that what they're looking for in that? Well, if you've ever fired a black powder, you get into a smaller bore mm-hmm. type of shotgun. Very mm-hmm. weak. You know, I mean they're not casting. They're okay. not casting enough lead and there's a delay delay in the firing. You know, a lot of smoke is created. Right. You know, but yeah, I mean, they they were just giving giving themselves the advantage by having a larger bore and more powder. Right. You know, something to reach out. You know, Rick can address that more with recent time about. I I, I haven't hunted and yeah. I guess years. I guess what my question really is though is like, how deadly could those market guns really be in comparison, like? to what we have now. Because, I mean, you're thinking this black powder, they're going to have to reload that thing. It's going to take time versus like, you know, a repeating shotgun. So, I mean, if you're talking percussion guns, right, yeah, you're going to have to reload, but they could reload those pretty quickly. Um, and I think kind of what what you're getting at is like, yeah, the punt gun had a had a function of, of, of actually trying to like kill a whole lot of birds at one time mass destruction yeah correct and because you you like like we mentioned before you probably only have one shot at a flock on them right right um and and the other thing too you got to think of not only were they big boards but a lot of times they were really really long especially when we uh, like i said when you talk about later when you get into the actual breech loaders right they're really long shells too so you've got a you've got a bunch of lead going down there so 
Now, when you start talking about the other, um, he's like four and eight gauge guns. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, correct. Four, eight gauge. Um, so when you start talking about those, you're still throwing a lot of lead down range, but nothing like that. And what you're kind of getting at is I think your idea with a four and eight, eight bore market gun, you're still probably shooting like single ducks or, you know, maybe a small group of ducks or, I mean, I'm sure there's no doubt they, they would sneak up on ducks too. Mm Mm-hmm shoot them off the water and get more than one but right and they would bait the, the, them in and shoot them in groups yeah, yeah. but it was it was a different it was certainly a different concept um but yeah it's it's like you're talking about comparing them to, to modern shells today yeah well number one they were shooting lead um so we you know we know that lead performs better than like your modern steel um but it, it it is. It's a matter of you didn't have the the powder. It wasn't as good. Um, so it was like Richard said. It's giving you the advantage of throwing out a lot of lead um, to to either hit as many you know hit as many ducks as you can with one shot, or you know just not miss ducks uh, as well. So yeah, and they tend to be less of the crude guns. Like they tend to be a nicer gun. Like who are making these market guns for the most part during this time? What makers are we seeing for market guns? A lot of them. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know which ones you have down there, Richard. Which ones do you have at the museum? He is only American, which you can say. Yeah, there's uh, well, there's even a, uh, a market gun down there made by Hiram Burdan. You know, that that had a company, and he he was a Burdan sharpshooter during the the Civil War. He had a regiment of sharpshooters, but he he had a a gunsmithing. You know, prior to the Civil War, and obviously it was made custom order, you know, for a person that was, you know, market shooting. When I use the term market, I, I the people weren't going out for sport. They wanted to get a lot of ducks. I mean, they were, whether it, let's just say it isn't market, it wasn't the selling in market, they were feeding a large family. I guess maybe giving them whatever advantage with a larger weapon. A normal person that was just going to go hunt and get a one or two waterfront, you know, to, to feed himself and maybe his wife and maybe a kid, he would have used a 12 gauge of some sort or some sort of a smaller, he wouldn't have gone to the effort. Of these, Rick mentioned about the long barrel, larger bore, six six gauge, eight gauge type of things, and even as well as is four gauge. I mean, they they were more of a for a purpose, shooting a large number or or making every one of your shots count. Maybe you have to fire ten rounds, you get ten ducks. Right. Most people would be happy with getting one. You know, yeah, and that makes sense because these aren't like wealthy people, so they're wanting to make sure, yeah, every shot counts and that they're getting, yeah, they don't want to be wasted money out there. There were, um, so the other thing I would add too, though, there were like uh, you just talk about like making the shot right. I mean, there were actually like wealthy people as well that weren't necessarily about the market hunting, but they would buy them not only for like as their own personal duck guns, but also too like you see like pigeon shoots at the time. Some of those guys would be shooting really large bore stuff just, just because you're, um, 
you know, you have better efficiency of killing stuff with those. Um, so you did see that kind of stuff, but I'm, you know, you can kind of tell the difference based on what it is. You know, the market hunter guns are going to be probably more crude or um, some of the punt guns might not be just because that was a business to them. Um, but but that was just kind of the way it was is at that time because of um, they're not like modern, uh, modern loads is pe- people are going to try and get more lead down range just to be more efficient. So, Okay, so we kind of mentioned on a little bit that the guns that you have, Richard, are American. And what you'll find in most water like punt guns and waterfowling guns, to early waterfowling guns, they tend to be ma- mostly European makers. So when does American manufacturers start, you know, making more, like kind of picking up the pace for waterfowling weapons. Well, I mean, it shifts with the personalized wetland smokeless powder and, yeah, and breech loading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, how many people have seen a Winchester 1897 that, you know, their great-grandfather had? You know, that that's when the shift, not to mention Europeans were still supplying us a great number of weapons. But it really came with the cartridge, you know, breech loading cartridge advent but what we're focused in here we keep going back to the term market hunting and multiple shots and pretty much it ended you know i mean it ended 1918 in america even though there's poachers that that continue much like you know reminds me of uh, of in liquor you know with the july of 1919 they they outlawed liquor in the united states and we had prohibition for 14 years it didn't stop people from drinking. Didn't it? Didn't stop people from putting a still and going, and, and creating alcohol. And a lot of my family did it. They were from Virginia, North Carolina. I mean, I'll be the first to admit it. But it, so it didn't stop market hunting. No, and didn't you know, market I mean, hunting kind of have a small resurgence during the depression? Like, didn't those they well, kind of bring those back? Yeah, because what I mentioned, like in my family, my father, he grew up during the Depression, and they had, before he went into World War II, they had to hunt to eat. So he really didn't see it as a sport. You know, later, it was my grandfather continued. He did the same thing, but he still liked it. So I had to go hunt with my grandfather. So, yeah, the Depression, (laughs) absolutely. And then nobody stopped. they, They wanted the food. Yeah, they had other problems to deal with. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is a good spot for our break, so we'll uh, come back in a minute. We've talked a lot about punt guns and market guns and I kind of want to talk a little bit about before I let y'all go um, about classic hunting guns and kind of a little bit about the market of them um, and just some random questions but to start as collecting with these like you know classic hunting guns you know side by sides and we can get into repeating and things like that seems to be the most popular popular currently in that you're selling in hunting and hunting arms particularly waterfowling 
Yeah, I mean, it's obviously you get collectors of all kinds of different stuff. It's hard to say what the most popular is, but, you know, it's the ones everybody's heard of. Obviously, you know, Parker shotguns and Elsie Smith shotguns and then Winchester Model 21s. And we start talking about American-made doubles. Um, you know, obviously, there's as Richard already mentioned, the, the Winchester 1897s, the Model 12s. Browning A5s, Browning Superpose, you know, those are just kind of the the classic ones that, you know, everybody grew up around or grew up wanting. And so now they're, you know, now they're collecting. Those, those are probably the most popular ones, I think, that we see. So I have a question, like, within that. So has there been any trends, like, throughout the years with those guns? Like, has there been areas where the doubles were really popular and then maybe some of those like early things like the A5 or those early pumps? Like, has there been trends throughout um, selling antique guns throughout the years? Like, and do you know what they are? Yeah, I mean, they, it all kind of goes, everything goes in cycles, you know, and it we see it not only just in shotguns, but every type of collectible firearm or, you know, at some point there, there's a whole generation of people that were really into, um, you know, maybe say the American doubles and um, or like like you mentioned, they grew up in their grandpa, they saw their grandpa shooting a Model 12. So then <laughs> they wanted that and they started collecting that. Right. And so it kind of goes in cycles. But the, the one thing that we always um, and like I said, this is whether it's shotguns or revolvers or military guns, it's like the best of the best stuff out there is, is always um, it always has new buyers out there. So that's that's always what we see kind of always trending upwards, I guess. Yeah. Has there been any I don't know. So we talked about like the technology of like the ammo lately, like um especially now with the new with the new like steel and stuff like how it's so much cleaner now are people buying have you noticed that people buying more like si- older side by sides cuz now they can shoot it with this newer ammo where they couldn't before is that like have they been buying i mean i know not some of these big guns no one's shooting them some of these more expensive ones but have you seen any like change in that that they're actually able to shoot some of these guns and are people buying them to shoot them so they can kind of have that feel of what it's like to hunt with them yeah i think that's that's always been a kind of a shotgun thing i think always shotgun collectors always kind of have the idea that they're going to go out and shoot shoot the guns they buy um i mean that's not obviously universal but i think it's there's a lot of people that do that obviously they've always been able to shoot lead out of them um so i think they've always been out and shot them um you know as far as with your more modern loads being able to to duck hunt with them, um, yeah, I think there are there's certainly people out there that do that. I, again, I don't think it's necessarily the majority, just because I guess if if I were to take a classic gun like that out duck hunting, I, the last thing I'd worry about would be the shells I'm shooting. It'd be the mud and the water and the yeah, well, I agree, I hundred percent agree. I don't I don't like it at all, but I just noticed that. I mean, but I'm a I'm a curator and a historian, so I have a different perspective, but your average yeah. duck hunter well, does def- not. There's definitely, there's definitely people out there that do it. Uh, I don't think it's the driving force to that to that market. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, like I said, I think gun, uh, shotgun guys are, are um, a, a little different in the fact that they're, you know, they, they will go out and shoot them. You know, one of the things I've always found by being in the waterfowling, like, history field that people like Richard are hard to come by when it comes to collecting 
shotguns. I find them like in the scheme of collecting guns, shotgun collectors are not necessarily, there's not as many of them, um, or at least you don't know about them as much. So what is the percentage, or you think like in antique guns, what is the percentage of people buying, collecting shotguns within the whole antique gun market? I don't know. What would you say, Richard? <laughs> I bet it's 10%. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, if that, very, very low percentage. In my estimation, Rick would have more of a feel there. But what I've seen is very few people are collecting antique shotguns, per se. Most of them are enthusiasts that buy high-end sporting weapons, you know, the, you know, they're buying, you know, the over-under Winchester 101s or, or, or I don't even know, you know, Rick would know more of that. Italian shotgun, Rosinis, I, I, I'm, it's, it's a gray area to me. Yeah. Why do you would, think that is? Why do you think less people collect, yeah, like waterfowling shotguns? What? Like our upland gate, it can be any sporting shotguns. Yeah, it's it's the 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 things that drive like Colt and Winchester collectors, right? Are are a lot of like the movies and just the history of America. And I think it's a it's a smaller, it's just a smaller market with the the guys that are into classic shotguns. And like Richard talked about, we we definitely have guys that are into more modern, new shotguns that are like. They're like the highest form of gun making yeah, really yeah, today. Yeah. So there's those there's those buyers. There's there's definitely the people that are into American doubles. Um, and again, that's those guys are are um, kind of their nostalgia is, is is with that hunting background. But I don't think most hunters necessarily um, are gun collectors. So it's just a different thing. Whereas again, what's driving the Colts and Winchesters and the other stuff is, is, you know, the classic Western movies yeah, that everybody like grew up watching. And, <laughs> yeah. 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 There's just more people. That, there's more people that watch Roy Rogers than, you know, and their grandpa had a Parker shotgun, I guess. So. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I've always wondered that, but yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. When you're talking about the really high end ones, I remember um, I never even really knew that existed. Cause I mean, I'm just a, duck hunter and then museum person. But when I first started at, um, like my first week at Bass Pro, they have the Beretta gallery there and they had some gun, Beretta gun that was worth like, I mean, they were selling, it was brand new and they were selling it for, I don't think it was like 150000 or something. And it was bought within like an hour of opening or something crazy. I mean, the guy I think flew from China or somewhere to buy it. It was I didn't know that was a thing until then. Yeah, they get, they get more expensive than that. Too, yeah, so. I, I assume so. Yeah, I mean they're selling this one in a Bass Pro shop, so I'm guessing they're not going to put the most expensive one out there. But yeah, I just didn't even know that was a thing. Um, like they they're I guess art is what we would call them at that point. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's that's kind of one of our big um, big taglines that that we talk about is is not all art is framed. Um, we have that in a lot of our marketing, and it's 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 so true with those guns. It's true with you know a lot of the early uh, antique American Colts and Winchesters, and but yeah, at some point it goes from um, being just a functional piece of equipment to uh, to certainly art. So I have a question, actually, that was from my coworker, John, who's also a co-host of this podcast. But um, he had a question about, this is kind of, and, and Rick, you might be the one to answer this. So these early guns, these side-by-sides, even saying like the early pumps and like the early semis, like the A5, the quality of these guns, like they were made with 
you know, such good quality. And do you think, so a lot of these guns, I mean, some of them have been brought back and, but a lot of these guns, you know, were discontinued at one point or are discontinued. Do you think that, I don't know how to say this nicely, but in a marketing sense that they got rid of these, like, cause they were such good qualities. You think like people just didn't, they bought their gun and they had their gun and they didn't need another gun. So manufacturers started producing, you know, different guns that, you know, like they didn't want these, like, I don't know how to say this, but basically new modern guns that we, like I shoot, like they don't necessarily last like these older guns do. I mean, some of these side-by-sides, I mean, they're still in perfect working condition. Um, A lot of them are. So do you think that led to their being discontinued later? Well, so, yeah, I mean, I I think it, it probably depends on what type of gun you're talking about. I mean, when you're talking about side-by-sides, yeah, I mean, the cost, not only we talk about the cost of making like a side-by-side in America today would be, it'd be pretty astronomical, but okay. we, don't, I, we, we really don't even have the um, uh, expertise to, to do it for the most part. I mean, there's a couple guys out there that are doing it, um, it but they're, you know, the cost of making one of those, and 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 that's relative to like a, a auto loader or a pump shotgun. They're just they're so much more expensive to manufacture because of that. Um, the, the process of, of having to to have two barrels basically shoot to the same spot. Is that why? Just as pause. Is that why like over unders are seen more than side by sides? Is it um, easier no, to do? No, that's just a preference. You have the single siding plane as opposed to, you know, you got two barrels sticking out there. Okay. So that that really is just a, pre- a preference thing. Over-unders are, are expensive as well um, to manufacture when you compare them to, you know, um, pump shotguns and auto loaders. So so that's how those died out. I mean, you, you talk about like Parker... Parker shotguns and everything. It's just, they got to be so expensive, um, especially when the Great Depression hit, that they just, they couldn't afford to do them anymore, right? But then you talk about auto loaders and um, and pump guns. Um, it, it, it wasn't necessarily that those weren't inherently too expensive to make. It's just like hand-making guns, right? I know like Winchester in, in 1964, I'm sure you've heard of pre-64 Winchesters. Well, Winchester made a company or the company decision at that point to basically just cheapen how they made everything. Um, and so that's, and it was a lot more machine manufactured than it was hand-fitted type stuff. So that's where you saw that. Just, I mean, the same with every every industry in, in, in the world, really, you know, at some point they just, we got to make this stuff cheaper and, um, you know, not as, not as high quality. So. Right. And more efficient. Yeah. Not a, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, cause I don't see, you just don't see any people hunting with side-by-sides duck hunting anymore. If you do see anything, you see a, an over under and you know, there, there are people that are religious about it. You know, but yeah, you just don't see many side by sides anymore. Yeah, it's just it's a prep. That's the preference thing. Just guys, guys uh, like the just looking down one one rib. Uh, well, I mean, if we even with the side by side, you're looking down one rib, but looking down the rib and seeing one barrel, I should say. Yeah, interesting. So, um, Richard, do you have any finding stories or any gun that you were after for a long time? Any like um, any kind of like stories like that? that you'd like to share well we do we have uh we're gonna have like two or three more shows i, I can <laughs> <laughs> i can <laughs> just give me one just give me one i know it's hard to pick 
Oh, it, it's very difficult. I I guess one that one that comes to mind is that when I found out my one of my family members, uh, my great uncle was in the 66 Western Illinois sharpshooters, which during the Civil War, he got in like in 1864. And I mean, they went on Sherman's March to see and whatever. But the, the biggest thing that they are uh, credited with is they were originally armed with St. Louis half stock percussion rifles, and they had to actually fire they had to have they had to shoot two like two to three inch groups at 100 yards you know imagine that back in the day so they were outfitted by a firm named dimmick in st louis and he had a, he ended up getting a contract for a thousand rifles and he could could not fulfill the contract he was overwhelmed and many of these rifles he he he, he farmed out he had other other company, but they they varied in caliber. So to make a long story short, I've always had sought those out. But once once they wore out these Dimmick rifles, uh, they ended up using. People have heard of the Henry lever action rifle. They and when they went on Sherman's march to the sea, there was that damn Yankee. The, the 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 Confederates would call it that damn Yankee rifle that fired you know fourteen shots. You know, loaded on Monday and shot till Friday. And I actually was able to, to to get one of those rifles out of a family that the the uh, gentleman actually went to reunions with my great uncle after the Civil War. There was a, the GAR with the Grand Army of the Republic. So that that made my day, I guess. Yeah, that's cool. Rick, do you have any good stories, gun stories? Uh yeah, I got a, I got a few good ones. One I can think of. It's um, I'm trying to think if there's any shotgun ones. I can't. That's all right. Can't think of anything off the top of my head. But uh, one I think of that's and it's actually not even a gun. It's uh, it's kind of interesting. But as you can imagine, we just get we get a lot of people you know call us about particular guns or you know other items. Sometimes people just random off the wall stuff that they'll send us right that they they think we want to auction. Um, and uh, one time, one of the guys that worked for me, um, you know, thought he had one of these, and was like, "Hey, can I tell this lady that we we don't want her her jewelry box, right?" And and I was like, "Well, okay, whatever. Let let me look at it, you know." And so I look at it, and I just say, "We want this lady's jewelry box." And he's like, "What are you talking about?" I said, "This isn't really a jewelry box. She uses it for jewelry, but." On the top of the the box, it said "From Samuel Colt to Elijah K. Root," uh, and Elijah K. Root was was Samuel Colt's uh, son-in-law, uh, and and basically he at one point gave him these whole uh, this whole presentation of of firearms, and they all had these glass cases on top. Well, this is one of the one of the cases. Um, for one of these guns that got that got separated from the gun so sure enough i look at her paper and her last name was root and she talks about we called her up and basically she was uh from the root family and it got passed down through her family but she didn't have any guns so she used it for a a, a jewelry box so we got that in and i don't remember what we ended up selling that for twenty five, thirty thousand dollars, something like that richard you might remember that uh and supposedly, uh, somebody out there knew the, the specific gun that was supposed to go with that. So I, th- I don't know if they ever ended up getting reunited or not. But oh, that would be really cool if they got reunited. I, I'm interested to know if that did. Um, yeah, that's really cool. All right, so Richard, I had 
um, on the show. His episode hasn't come out yet, so um, but it will by the time yours comes out. Uh, John Munson, decoy collector, mm-hmm. and he told me about your Jack Musgrove collection, mm-hmm. and I didn't know much about Jack Musgrove. So can you tell me about your collection? So when did you get into him, and how many of his birds did you have? And uh, he's an interesting story. So we talked a lot about him. And so the the audience, if they listen to John's, they'll get like a good history of like who John was. I mean, Jack, sorry, who Jack was and um, like what kind of decoys they were. But I just kind of wanted, I didn't know you had his, a lot of his decoys. I want to kind of hear your story of it. Well, Musgrove was, the reason I knew of Musgrove is he was involved in the state of Iowa, uh, as I recall, something with with the uh, conservation, what have you, and he ended up writing a book, or he was in conjunction with another individual about waterfowl shooting on the Mississippi River, and also you know in in Iowa. And you look in the book, and it showed these decoys that were made by Musgrove. Well, where do you find those? Well. I went to to the Messiah, who everybody knows, the most famous guy, Joe Tonelli. And I said, can you give me, you know, you have any of these Musgroves? He said, Richie, says, uh, and we both know Joe and love him. And, and he said, I got some of those 25 years ago. I don't know where the hell they went. I think the family still have them. Well, lo and behold, next thing we know, Munson ends up doing an article. He has these, has a, large group of them for sale he he found a a a guy that knew munson well or knew uh, muskrow well and had all the decoys so i bought a great number of them from there and i think i have i'm not even sure i have a lot of decoys 25 30 of them and and they are yeah they go everywhere from field blue you know blue gooses to to mallards and other species. But the interesting thing about Musgrove is if he made a decoy of it, he shot that type of bird. Yeah, so I saw that, and I was looking at that article, yeah. and there's a Eurasian in there right. and, and well, an old squirrel. One of the neatest ones that I got is it was a hybrid. It was a hybrid between a mallard and a pintail. Great. Ah. Yeah, well, I can see that happening. But where is this uh, well, Eurasian I mean, and Old Squaw? If, if, if he got it, it he shot it. And that, that's what intrigued And he was a very skilled craftsman. <laughs> he learned, who was his, didn't he learn from somebody that was famous? Did I, I think of somebody else. There was another carver there, and he was from Des Moines, Iowa area. But now we're talking back in the 1940s. and okay. But... But Musgrove's work right, is second right. to none. You know, I mean, for very good and, and yeah, very lifelike, very and he was very detailed in what he did. But um, so, yes, uh, Mr. Munson was absolutely correct. I, I, I purchased from both him and uh, his, the, the guy that knew him well was a guy named uh, Barry Kenny. And uh, very, just a gentleman and, and, he went on to carve his own decoys, but you know, but Musgrove was the one, and it's in a time period. My collection goes, Musgrove falls in it very well. It's, you know, I, I don't do anything like recent, but 
I think they go as late as the 1960s and they go all the way back to the 1940s. And it's a time period I like. I don't know. That's like a debatable time period for decoys. Like you could maybe call it contemporary, but I, I don't know. It's borderline. I don't know if you can really. People probably have a lot of opinions about it, but mm-hmm. I, I, it's borderline. Um, I've never really understood what the definition, like everyone's definition of contemporary is. Well, in speaking with Joe, pretty much the agreed upon is probably the 1970s and before. Pretty much there before the 1970s. Yeah, that's but what I would think. One of my other favorite, my favorite carver was a guy named Heck Whittington. I knew his family and such, and he lived up till 1981. And uh, he carved to the day he died. And, uh, oh, yeah. But most of the, he yielded with the times, uh, the items he carved in the 1970s were more decorative, you know, but they were very nicely done. But okay. it, people want the stuff that you can throw in the water and float, and that's or or using a field like the field geese. Yeah, and that that's not only do they want fifty years old, you know, pre nineteen seventy, they want floaters for the most part. You know what we call them hollow hollow bodied with a weight. Yeah. So Musgrove did he hunt over his decoys, or did he just make one after he? No, he hunted over them. I mean, he was an avid sportsman, and yeah, no, he That's what if I he made it, he pretty much for the most part those hunted. Whether he, he hunted the geese and he put them in the field, which you know those. How many did you think? How many did he make? Do you know? Uh, he, he, it was a you know not a lot. I mean, between Barry and and Mister Munson, they they would know. But if he made. 200 birds, I'd be surprised, which is very low. You know, maybe it's 100, 150 birds. It's some, what, whatever Jack was talking about that, or, you know, that, that, that's the number of birds, which is not many. Well, all right. Well, is there anything before we go that either of you would like to add um, or tell our audience? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Other than um, I appreciate what Ducks Unlimited does. I'm a, uh, I'm on a local committee. I have been for I don't know how many years now, but I, I certainly appreciate everything you guys do. Well, thank you. You got anything, Richard? From my standpoint, what what I appreciate is uh, the professionalism that, that your museum dealt me, and the fact that I've had other instances with museums, and and you know if I've loaned my collections, and I, I will say that I, I'm very privileged and, and and humbled that uh, you guys took the uh, effort to put you know my babies out there so to speak and and present them well and, and uh I, I i can't say enough good and and i said I'm, I'm 500 miles away and very busy but i'm coming down to to view the collection and you and i were discussing about how time flies it's it's already been there nine months and it seemed like i gave it to you a month ago it does well thank you so much for that that means a lot i really appreciate that i I will add if you guys have any sort of influence would you guys tell them to stop making the bush light ducks unlimited neon signs because my wife buys every damn one of them (laughs) i can't do anything about that I'm sorry. You might have some more in your future. We're, we're in Iowa, you know. Bush light is <laughs> like water. <laughs> yeah, you're probably going to have more in your future. I can't really do much to help you there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll that. take it. I'll let other people know, though. I think it will fall on deaf ears. <laughs> All right. 
Well, Rick and Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks to our producer, Chris Isaac. And thanks to our listeners for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks.